Lord. How many of you guys are still looking for work? Look at that. It's a lot of guys. How many of you guys have found work in the last six months? Now, there's some encouragement. Put those hands up high. Yeah, we ought to thank the Lord for that. That's great. Yeah. And that'll give you guys hope that, uh, that, that are still looking. Well, Father, we come to you because we are dependent on you and we have, we have nowhere else to go. We, uh, Lord, we thank you for what we have. So often when we're in a jam, when we're in a crisis, uh, we're fixated and we're focused on the need. But, but even in times of need, Lord, we can, we can take a step back and see your provision and see how good you have been to us. And so tonight we start by uh, praising you and by thanking you for your care, for all that we enjoy, for the freedoms that we have, uh, for the health that we have, that we live in a country where we can uh, meet and study the scriptures. We have been given so much. We do pray for the guys that are, are in between, that, uh, that are looking for work. And Lord, that produces great, um, uh, great pressure, quite frankly. We pray that you would encourage these guys. We pray that you would make a way for them and that their, um, their efforts would be blessed by you. And at the right time, Lord, you would provide them with a slot that would not just produce income, but enable them to use their gifts and to contribute and to make a difference. We thank you for the guys who have found work. We thank you for the guys that have been through a chapter, Lord, of transition. And now uh, they're seeing your hand uh, at work in their lives and things are getting back on an even keel. Lord, when these things happen and interrupt our lives, we are reminded of how much we need you. And we're reminded of how much we have uh, when, when we have income and when we have provision. Father, we ask tonight that uh, you would speak to our hearts. We're coming from different places. We're coming from different situations. We're dealing with different issues. For some of us, they might be health issues. Others of us, it's a marriage issue. Others, it's a situation with our kids or a deal at work. What we all have in common is that we need you and we need your perspective. So we open up the Word of God tonight, asking you to instruct us and teach us and encourage us Exhort us, give us what we need, we pray, Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> We're at an interesting place in the book of Nehemiah. Because uh, what has happened is they have finished the task. If you, have your, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 6. In Nehemiah chapter 6... In verse 15, we, we find that the task that the whole book of Nehemiah centered around was completed. Um, they finished the wall. For roughly 160 years, the wall surrounding the city of Jerusalem had been broken down. There were 70 years of captivity where the people were taken into Babylon. Um, then they had a return after 70 years under Zerubbabel, and they built a temple. Now, it wasn't anything like the temple that Solomon built. It wasn't anything close. But they returned, and a remnant of the people came back, uh, and it was a start. But it was uh, approximately 
a good chunk of time, about another roughly, what, 90 years before Nehemiah returned, this whole time the wall had been down. Their defenses were down. Uh, God put this on Nehemiah's heart to come back, rebuild the wall, and, and they finished it in Nehemiah 6, verse 15. Uh, they finished it in 52 days. So roughly, the first six chapters of this book uh, tell us the story of, of when God first put it in Nehemiah's heart to go back and, and rebuild the wall, and then the story of how the wall was put together. So in a sense now, we're at a turning point, because here's what's happened. Uh, the wall has been rebuilt, and that was a great victory. But now, but now you see, the people must be instructed. Uh, the wall put up the defense. The wall put up uh, a barrier, and it put up the doors, and it gave them a sense of protection. But, but now there's a transition that's going to occur in the book but because now there's got to be a spiritual infrastructure. You know, when we talk about infrastructure, we talk about roads, we talk about bridges. Um, think of Central Expressway 10 years ago. You don't even want to think about that, do you? Some of you guys had to drive that for 10 years while that thing was being uh, reconfigured and, and when it was being refurbished. And it just seemed like it would take forever. And now you go down, it's great. But there were 10 years. See, the infrastructure had broken down. Uh, and, and all that work had to go into that kind of thing. There is a spiritual infrastructure because you're talking about a nation. You're talking about the nation of Israel, and you, you're talking about a new start. They were in captivity, and, and, and now there's a new chapter that's being written. So the external work has been done, but now the internal work has, has got to be done. Uh, as I've been looking at this stuff this week, I, I'm really fascinated with the parallel between what was happening here with Nehemiah and Israel and what's going on with us and the nation of Iraq. Because if you will, a, a great victory took place. Do you know how long it took for us once the war started uh, to actually go into Baghdad and win that thing? It took 52 days. No, I just made that up. <laughs> I don't know how long it took. Somebody ought to put a pencil to it. What did it take, three weeks, basically? Three, four weeks? Yeah, it, it was a great victory. It was a great victory. But now, say, all right, so now we're in there, and Saddam, we don't know where the heck he is, and we got the statues down, and they've ransacked the palaces and all that. So the victory took place. Now the question is, now what are we going to do? What we're talking about doing is we're talking about trying to revitalize a nation and rebuild a nation uh, and we're talking about trying to establish a democracy, which is really interesting in that part of the world because they're not real big on that. Now, there's a reason they're not real big on it. We're seeing all these demonstrations, and we're basically uh, hearing them tell us that they don't want us around. Uh, why is that? Well, there's a, there's a real good question for that. Whenever a nation is built... It's not built in a vacuum. It's got to be built on something. Uh, when you go back and you read some of the statements of our founding fathers, I think it was John Adams who said that our government is constructed for a good and decent and moral people. 
And then he went on and talked about the place of the Scripture in the, in, in, in the lives and behavior of our nation. And when that's removed, he basically said democracy won't work. Because you can't have democracy in a vacuum. Democracy has to be built upon something. I thought it was interesting yesterday. Because there's this demonstration. Uh, and isn't it interesting they could have a demonstration? Because they couldn't have a demonstration. And they were all you know, celebrating in this one religious festival of Islam that they were doing yesterday. You saw this in the news. Uh, well, they haven't been able to do that for 20 years because Saddam wouldn't let them. So we go in, and now they've got the freedom to do that. And now what are they asking? Now what are they, they're not asking. What are they saying? Get out of here. Because they're not interested in what we want to do. Why are they not interested in what we want to do? Because they understand that fundamentally, when you're talking about doing a new infrastructure, it's got to be built on something, and they don't want it built on what we have built on. I, I really thought it was wild last night when I saw those guys with those whips and with those chains, and I saw them, as you did, uh, beating themselves and whipping their flesh and cutting themselves. I thought, that's really ironic. Because that's one of the things that Nehemiah was concerned about. If you flip over to Nehemiah verse 8, and basically what happens is that in Nehemiah 6, the wall is, is rebuilt. Um, in Nehemiah 7, what he does is he organizes the people and he takes a census and uh, he gets them set up into a stable, well-guarded community. And then in 8, he begins to establish God's word in the life of the people. Because they got a wall up, but now he's got to build a spiritual infrastructure. And so what he does is he brings in Ezra, the priest. He says, and all the people gathered. I'm in Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. It's where they got water. Remember when we looked at the wall? They had all these different gates. They had the refuse gate. They had the dung gate. They had, this is where they got the water. This is where there was a well. This is where there was a spring. In front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So they would have had the teenagers there. They would have had the kids that, that could listen and who could pay attention and could understand what was being said. Because, because he's got to rebuild the spiritual infrastructure now. You see? Um, verse 3. And he read from it before the square, which was in the front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who can understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Uh, and Ezra the scribe stood at the wooden podium, or the wooden platform, which they had made for the purpose. And then you see the group of men that he had standing with him, verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. What he's got here is the Word of God. He's got the Old Testament law. And when he starts reading it, the people stood up because they knew this, is, this book, this book of God, is what they were going to base their new culture on. From this point on in Jewish history, they became the people of the book. They became adherents 
to the law. It was a major seismic shift for them because historically they had wandered from the law. So last night we saw these guys in this demonstration and they got these chains and they're beating themselves and they're cutting themselves up and they're ripping themselves up. I really thought that was interesting. Because, see, there's a historical connection to Israel and to Nehemiah um, in what we saw last night. Uh, turn to 1 Kings, if you would. In 1 Kings, we're going to jump back here about 400 years before Nehemiah. And in, in 1 Kings, we are introduced to this couple. Um, we're introduced to this couple, Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, they, uh, Ahab was the wickedest king in the history of Israel. In 1 Kings 16, verse 29, it says, And Ahab the son of Omri became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa king of Judah. Look at verse 31. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married, now catch this, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. Uh, so Ahab is the king of Israel. Uh, he, is, he is the man who is leading them. He is the man who is to give them direction. He is the man who serves before the Lord God and then leads the nation. But instead of following God, uh, he starts serving the Baals. Why? Because he marries this gal who's a Baal worshiper, uh, Jezebel. Um, I'll tell you what's really fascinating to me. Flip over to 1 Kings. Uh, look at, um, what is it, 18? Yeah. Look at uh, 1 Kings 18. Because you see, uh, what, what Jezebel did when she married Ahab, she not only married him, but she brought a lot of people with her that had great spiritual influence. And what they began to do was they began to put in a new infrastructure spiritually in Israel that began to break its back. Um, in, in, um, in verse 17 of 1 Kings 18, it says, and it came about when Ahab saw Elijah. Now, you've got to understand something. When Ahab and Jezebel got on the throne, uh, because of the wickedness they were doing, and, and you guys should understand that Baal worship, we're going to do a little history here for a minute. Um, Baal worship was a wicked, wicked religion. Uh, there were these myths about Baal. Uh, Baal is Satan, is basically who he is. But he's a mythological, Baal is a mythological god. And the people that worship Baal, uh, they were very perverse. Uh, the Baal myths all were sexual um, in their orientation. Uh, and what they would do is, when, when they would have these worship services, they would have Baal uh, priests and prostitutes, and they would reenact the Baal stories. Uh, Baal killed his father, but before he killed his father, he castrated his father. Uh, Baal had uh, three sisters, and he had sexual relationships with all the sisters, and then it just goes down from there. And when they would have these 
public services in Israel, they would have these prostitutes and these priests would act out the stories sexually in front of the people. It was unbelievable. Uh, there were three characteristics of Baal worship. Um, they were, uh, were pro-choice. Isn't that interesting? Because one of the things that they did is that they sacrificed children. Uh, they would take uh, children, and they had a god called Baal Moloch. And what they would do is they would, he would sort of sit with big hands like this. He was sort of like one of those Buddhas, if you've ever seen one of those. And he had a hollowed out back, and the priest would build a fire in the back for two or three days, get it white hot. And then when they would have their worship, and this happened uh, in Judah with uh, Manasseh, who was the son of Hezekiah, uh, to show your allegiance to Baal Moloch, you would take your firstborn baby and throw him in the hands of this god, and the baby would be immolated. Uh, they, uh, they killed children in, uh, in Baal worship, and that affected Israel. It got into Israel. They would kill their own babies. They'd throw them into the fire. Uh, that's what I call pro-choice. You know, we do that today. We just don't do it in the same way. Uh, I'll tell you something else about them. Uh, they were, uh, were pro-environment, Baal worshipers were. You know what I mean by that? What I mean by that is, when Ahab and Jezebel got on the throne, you can read this in 1 Kings 16, Elijah shows up. And the first thing Elijah says is, anybody remember what he told him? He said, it's not going to rain. Now, why did he say that? And he said it wasn't going to rain for three and a half years. And you know why he said that? That was a direct challenge to Baal because they thought Baal controlled the environment. They thought Baal controlled the growing seasons, the agricultural seasons. And what he wanted them to know is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, controlled all of that. Baal was a false god. So he says Yahweh is going to turn off the water for three and a half years. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. Isn't that interesting? Uh, we, live, we live in a day where environmentalism has become a spiritual issue. Uh, uh, everybody wants clean rivers and, you know, you want to go camping, you want it to be clean and all that. But we've developed this whole theology now around environmentalism that has become, quite frankly, it's become a religion. There are spiritual aspects to it. The third thing about Baal worship is that it was pro-homosexual. When they would have these worship services and they would uh, uh, get up and do these dramas in public that would depict the Baal myths, Many of them were homosexual in nature, and there were perversion. There were sex acts done in public, homosexual sex acts done by the Baal priest. And if you had a problem with that, and you opposed it, you were accused of being hateful and intolerant. <laughs> that ring a bell with anybody. Uh, you see, there's nothing new under the sun, guys. See, we're dealing with the same issues today under different titles. Now, that's a little background for you. Because what happened to Israel is, Israel got infiltrated with Baal worship, which broke the back of Israel. This continued for hundreds and hundreds of years, and that's why they went into captivity for 70 years. Nehemiah does not want that to be repeated. Now, let's go back to 1 Kings uh, 18. Because I want you to see what's happening here when Elijah encounters um, Ahab, 1 Kings 18, verse 17. 
And it came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? That's unbelievable. Ahab sees Elijah and calls Elijah the troubler of Israel. Well, who was it that brought all the trouble on Israel? It was Ahab. And so what happens here, look at verse 19, uh, or 18. He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now send and gather to me all at Israel, gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Jezebel brings these 850 prophets in. Now where did they come from? Well, she was a Sidonian. Tyre and Sidon are just north of Israel in southern Lebanon. That's really interesting to me. Um, and I'll show you why here in just a minute. And what, if you know the story, what's going to happen is Elijah is going to ch uh, challenge these 850 priests of Baal to show that Baal is God or that Yahweh is God. And, and so what happens is they build an altar and they put a sacrifice on it and they call to Baal and they ask Baal to bring fire down from heaven. Look at verse 26. Uh, then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. And it came about at noon, and Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied, literally he is in, he is in the latrine, or gone aside, or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So, now catch this now. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. That's what you saw last night on TV. That's exactly what you saw. Did you not see guys who had cut themselves and blood was gushing out of their... You guys ever heard of the Hezbollah? What's the Hezbollah? The terrorist organization. Uh, this is from the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, uh, Hezbollah is a Lebanese group of Shiite militants. Who had the demonstration yesterday in Iraq? Shiites, okay? That has evolved into a major force in Lebanon society and politics. Um, where does Hezbollah operate? Catch this. Its base is in Lebanon's Shiite-dominated areas including parts of Beirut, southern Lebanon, and the Bekaa Valley. You know what we're talking about there? We're talking about the area from which Jezebel came. Same exact area. Tyre, Sidon. Uh, remember Elijah later went to the woman at Zarephath? You guys remember that? You know where Zarephath is? It's right by Tyre and Sidon. He went into enemy-occupied territory. But, but what I'm saying to you is, historically, Historically, the guys who were Baal worshipers, as the years have gone by, they syncretized and they mixed in with Islam. And what you saw last night was the same principles at work that were at work in the Old Testament. Am I making any sense to you guys at all? See, there's a connection and there's a link. Now, Nehemiah did not want that to happen again. Because you see, there's a spiritual infrastructure. That, all that stuff is based on a belief system. 
And, uh, and if you recall back in 1 Kings 18, uh, 1 Kings 18, verse 18, Elijah says to Ahab, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. All right. So now you go 400 years down the road in history. They've just rebuilt the wall. Nehemiah gets all the people together in front of the water gate. He gets Ezra up there to read from the word of God because he doesn't want them making the same mistake again and going after the Baals. He's got to build a spiritual infrastructure. So he takes them to the word of God. It's going to be real interesting to see what happens in Iraq. Because how can you build what we would, we want a democracy in there, but how can you build it without the foundation? It's going to be very interesting to watch. So what he does is, am I making sense to you guys? Am I? This stuff's all tied together. Isn't that fascinating? It's amazing to me. So what he does is, as he builds this spiritual infrastructure, he takes the people to the Word of God. And what has to happen is, is that these people, he takes the adults, he takes the men, he takes the women, he takes the kids who can understand, and what he does is, from early in the morning to late in the day, they're reading the Word of God to them. And because that's how the spiritual infrastructure is built. If the nation is going to survive, they've got to be built on something. Um, let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 8. And I want you to notice the emphasis here. Because the emphasis here is not only on them hearing the, the Word of God, but on their understanding the Word of God. Um, in verse 2, it says, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. Uh, in verse 3, it says, those who could understand. Uh, in verse 7, it, it, it says that the men that were with him explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Um, you say, Steve, well, that's, this is all pretty basic and this is all pretty obvious. Is it really? You see... What we're talking about here, guys, is that God has given the Word of God to us so that the Word of God might be understood and that the Word of God might be lived out. James said, don't just be hearers of the Word, but be doers of the Word. Um, the, the principle of understanding the Scriptures is critical. How many of you guys... I'm just curious, grew up in church, went to Sunday school, okay. How many of you guys were bored the majority of time? How many of you found it not interesting? How many of you a lot of times felt like it was going right over your head? How many of you guys felt like you, you wish you could be anywhere else but there? Okay. <laughs> You're just products of good old evangelical Christianity. Do any of you guys remember a Sunday school teacher or a preacher that was different? Do you remember anybody that got your attention? 
Do you remember anybody that put a hook in you and was able to communicate in such a way that you understood what he was saying and you got it and it made a difference in your life? Anybody? That's what we're talking about. Um, it's a sin. You've heard this before. It's a sin to bore people with the Bible. Uh, it, it's a sin just to feed people information, just to feed it to them. Uh, the whole point, the whole point is for the Word of God to be declared so that it can be comprehended and understood. I, I want you to go back here to Nehemiah verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 8, it says, And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Uh, there is a class that you take if you go to seminary. And the class is called hermeneutics. Now, what does that mean? Uh, well, it just means, uh, hermeneutics just basically means to interpret. Um, I, I think if there is one class you could take in seminary, if you could just choose one class, I would suggest to you that the most important class to take would be a class on hermeneutics. More so than Greek, more so than his, uh, uh, Hebrew, more so than uh, uh, church history, more so than, uh, than even theology. And I'll tell you why. Because until you understand the principles of how to interpret and understand the Bible, you can have the Greek, but if you don't understand how to use the Greek and interpret what is there accurately, Greek is worthless to you. Um, what I want to do tonight is I want to take a few minutes to show you what these guys did and why we do it the same way that they did it. They were working very, very hard to make sure that the people not only heard the word, but they understood it. See, that's the name of the game. Have you ever been in a Bible study? Have you ever been in a group? That have to be a Bible study. You ever been in a group of people, and someone says something about the Bible, and someone will say, oh, that's just your interpretation? Have you ever heard that? Let me give you guys a principle. Of any text in the Bible, there is just one interpretation, period. There are not many interpretations. So someone says, oh, that's your interpretation. Or that's your, have you ever been to a group, Bible study group, and everyone sits around, somebody reads a passage, and everyone goes around and says, well, what do you think this means? You know what? Quite frankly, it doesn't give us not what you think it means. <laughs> or what I think it means. Because it only means one thing. See, we live in an age of multiple interpretations. Of any text in the Bible, there's one interpretation. There are many applications, but there's one interpretation. See if this doesn't make sense to you. Until I have the meaning that was in the mind of the author when he penned the words under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, until I have the meaning that was in Paul's mind, until I have that meaning, I do not have the correct interpretation. Does that make sense to you? If you say, I'm going to the store to pick up bread, I could say, well, what he really means is that he's on a medical physical search for truth. And 
and, and he's looking into the deeper things of knowledge in order to find a way to sustain him as he goes through life. That's not what I meant. If I say, I'm going to the store to pick up some bread, you know what I mean by that? I mean, I'm going to the store to get some bread. Now, you can, you can assign 180 different interpretations to what I mean. But until you have the meaning that was in my mind when I said it, you don't have the interpretation. That makes sense? We live by certain laws of interpretation every single day. I want to submit to you that what these guys did is what you do when you read the yellow pages. See, we tend to take the Bible, and we tend to think, well, when you interpret the Bible, you know, it's sort of, well, it's, how do you interpret the Bible? You interpret the Bible the same way you interpret the yellow pages. You interpret the Bible the same way that you interpret the Dallas Morning News when you read it. There are certain principles of interpretation that we use on a daily basis that, quite frankly, most of us have never sat down and identified. But there are certain laws that we use in order to get the meaning when someone communicates with us. Uh, those same things are true when you study the Bible. Um, and that's what these guys did. You know, uh, uh, Ezra's up there reading the scriptures, and, and here's kind of the scene as I see it. He's reading the scriptures, and then what they do is they take breaks. And these guys that are with him, what they do is they go around and they get smaller groups together, and they say, are you guys catching this? And they're asking questions, and they're translating to give the sense, to give the meaning of what that text meant. Because until you have the meaning that was in the mind of the writer, you don't have the correct interpretation. Um, let me give you several principles on interpreting the scripture, because it's what they did in this text. Uh, number one, there is a requirement. There is a requirement to interpret the scriptures. Um, in, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, why don't you take your Bible and turn there with me. Uh, th there is a requirement to be able to understand the Bible. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it lays it out for us very clearly. Verse 14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised or spiritually understood. Now, here's what that's saying. That's saying that the natural man is the man without Christ. Do you guys remember before you came to know Christ? Remember picking up a Bible and reading it? And... Uh, it, 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 you probably had the experience of it not making a lot of sense to you. But then Christ comes into your life, and suddenly there's a desire to read the Scriptures. Because what happens is you're born again, the Spirit of God is in your life. See, without the Spirit of God, you can't understand the Word of God because your eyes are blind. So the Spirit of God comes into your life, opens your, opens your eyes, and now you can understand the things of God which you couldn't understand before you came to the Lord. Um, th that's the first requirement that has to happen. Uh, excuse me. Gosh. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. This isn't fine. Um, all right. So that's, no, that's all right, Fred. No, that's all right. Your eyes aren't very good. 
I can read it. I'm just going to put it up here. That's fine. Um, so the first requirement. What do you guys think? Maybe you guys can fix that. I'm sorry. Fred, thanks. I was just so shocked. It was shock and awe. I didn't know quite what to do with this thing. Or, or is it on shock? Um, back in Nehemiah, it said they translated to give the sense. Uh, here's the first principle I want to give you, is the principle of literal interpretation. Okay? The principle of literal interpretation. <clears throat> here's how I would define that. The literal interpretation as applied to any document is that approach which understands the meaning of a sentence in usual or ordinary or normal terms. Okay? Let me do that again. The literal interpretation as applied to any document is that approach which understands the meaning of a sentence in usual or ordinary or normal terms. Dennis Brindley has written this. He says, Hermeneutics, the universal laws of human language, is a science. Man has not made up these laws. He has discovered them. These laws are just as real um, as, and objective as the law of gravity. These laws apply to all languages and cultures. They are timeless. Uh, just as for thousands of years men knew and functioned by the law of gravity, even though Newton had not formulated the law, even so, for ages, man has observed and functioned by these laws of human language, even though often they were not aware of their existence. Um, William Tyndale said this, and think about this about your Bible and when you're reading a passage. Here's what Tyndale said, and he wrote this about 500 years ago, so it's kind of King James's, okay? He says, Thou shalt understand, therefore, that the scripture hath but one sense, which is the literal sense. And that literal sense, if the root uh, is the root and ground of all, and the anchor that never falleth, whereunto if thou cleave, thou canst never err nor go out of the way. And if thou leave the literal sense, thou canst not but go out of the way. Hear what he's saying? You take the Bible, you read it, there's a literal, natural sense to the Bible. You stick to the literal tense, uh, to the literal uh, sense of the Bible. When, when you start reading in or spiritualizing what is in the Scripture, you get in trouble. I'll never forget years ago, driving across the San Mateo Hayward Bridge in Northern California. I was listening to this Christian radio program, and this lady was teaching on the Proverbs 31 woman, if you're familiar with that passage. And it talks about this woman and all the stuff she, do, she does. And at one point, it talked about she uh, had this thread that was scarlet. Uh, and, and you know what this gal said? She said, this represents the blood of Jesus. I remember looking at that or thinking about that and thinking, you know what? That's not talking about the blood of Jesus. But what she did was she took, instead of taking it literally, she had to spiritualize it and assign another meaning. The context of Proverbs 31 is that this is a godly woman who works hard for her family. That was the sense of it. But she had to assign another meaning other than the literal meaning. And once you start doing that, there's no control over the interpretations that you come up with. 
Um, now, some of you guys, are, let me give you some advantages of literal interpretation. Grant. Song of Solomon, great example. Yeah, yeah, it has been. If you read Song of Solomon, it has been. And all these, you read commentaries on Song of Solomon, these guys are all coming up with a whole bunch of different things. Because they're kind of too embarrassed to take it just what it says. Now, there's a, th anyway, you're right. Let me give you some advantages of interpreting the Bible literally, okay? Number one, previous fulfillment of prophecy has been literal. This indicates that unfulfilled prophecy will be completed in the same way. I, I, I don't have this exactly right, but if I'm not mistaken, before Christ came, there were 200, approximately 285 prophecies in the Old Testament that talked about what Jesus would do when he came and walked the earth. Those were fulfilled literally. You see? One of the things that was prophesied about Jesus, about the Messiah, is that he would be born in Bethlehem. You know what? He was born in Bethlehem. Now, the Book of Mormon says he was born in Jerusalem. Did you know that? Just a minor problem there. But Micah said that he would be born in Bethlehem. And guess what? He was born in Bethlehem. It's pretty hard to arrange your own birth. It's pretty hard to arrange, just, you know, to fabricate that. 285 times it talked about the fact that there were specific things that the Messiah would do. All those prophecies were fulfilled literally. See, that's why we look at the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled in the Scripture. You know what we think? We think they're to be fulfilled literally. In Revelation, Chuck's going through Revelation right now. Uh, hopefully he'll be done before Jesus comes back. <laughs> we don't know. You see? But, you know, you read Scripture, and it talks about the fact that in the last day, there are going to be two witnesses. They're going to get up, and they're going to preach, and the whole world, you know, and then they're going to be slain, and the whole world's going to watch their bodies. They're going to see their bodies. And for, year, you know, years and years ago, people thought, how, the whole, how can the whole world see their bodies? Well, now we know. My gosh, it's going to be on CNN. It's going to be on, I mean, it's going to be every time you turn a channel, there are going to be the bodies of the two witnesses. And then what's going to happen is, by the power of God, those guys are going to be resurrected, and they're going to come alive. Now, I think that's going to happen literally. Why? Because prophecy that's been fulfilled has been fulfilled literally. See, when you depart from the literal, then you get all, well, what that really means is, no, what it means is they're going to be killed, and they're going to resurrect. That's what it means. See, the literal anchors us to reality. Um, and I've already made this point. Second point is, once you depart from the literal, there's no control over the interpretation. Uh, you can come up with anything, basically, that you want to come up with. Um, so number one, interpret the Bible literally. Here's number two. What about figurative language? How do you handle figurative language? Well, can I suggest to you that you interpret figurative language literally? Does that make any sense to you? What the definition of is is, yeah. Don't get me off. <laughs> We've already talked about Ahab and Jezebel. Yeah. I'm with you all the way. You're with me? I'm with you all the way. Yeah. But, but let's say we're talking about Revelation. Okay. Because we have 
Right. 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 All right. Well, all right, let me give you some principles. That's a great question. What do you do with all the symbolism? What do you do with all the figures of speech? And see, what I'd say to you is I'd go ask Chuck. <laughs> let me give you a couple principles. Um, there's a distinction between plain literal and figurative literal. Um, so number one, there's a distinction. Number two, there's an abundance of figurative language in the Bible as we're going to see in Revelation. Uh, thirdly, there's value to figurative language because it makes the Bible, it makes any document more graphic. And it makes it, uh, there are metaphors, it, it's, uh, it, it watercolors it. It, it, it provides interest, it provides background. Um, here's some guidelines when you come to figurative language. You assume the plain, literal meaning. When you see a passage, assume it's plain literal, but, but if the literal involves obvious contradiction to known fact, depart from the literal. For instance, in Galatians 2.9, it says that Peter, James, and John were pillars of the temple. All right? That doesn't mean they were concrete, does it? No. So, so see, were they literal pillars? No. What is being said there is, is there's a metaphor that, there, that, that, that is there. There's a figure. You take that literally? That he hit that ball a mile. That's unbelievable. No one's ever hit a ball a mile. Babe Ruth didn't do that. Joe DiMaggio, he hit it a mile. You know he didn't hit it a mile. He might have hit it 473 feet, but he didn't take it a mile. What was the point of the figure? You take the figure, literally, he hit it a heck of a long way. You see? Now, when you get into Revelation, you've got to start, we'll get into this later. There's a principle called Scripture, interpret Scripture. So Revelation, you're going to go back to Daniel, and you're going to go back to Ezekiel, and you're going to see Scripture interprets Scripture. Here's another principle for you. We interpret the obscure in light of the clear. Okay? You interpret the obscure in light of the clear. You just don't take an isolated passage and say, oh, well, that's what I mean. You take the whole teaching of Scripture and, and you balance it, uh, is what you do. Um, because you see, by taking these principles and by taking these, um, these laws, what it helps us to do is to understand what God is saying and what God means, and, and the application that it has for our lives. You know what's interesting to me is that the enemy has always worked in order to keep the scriptures from being interpreted and being understood. Uh, historically, in England, see, here's how he works today, is that how he works today is, is that he doesn't want us to interpret the scripture accurately. You see? Uh, how it used to work is that the way he'd keep you from understanding the scripture is that the scriptures weren't made available. Um, I might have I read this to you about four or five months ago, but I'm going to do it again. Uh, I quoted from William Tyndale. Uh, William Tyndale was born in 1494, near the, 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 about the middle of the Dark Ages. Um, the reason they, they were the Dark Ages is that the Roman Catholic Church 
had kept the people from the Bible. They did not want people reading the scriptures. Uh, William Tyndale devoted his life to changing that. Tyndale built on the work of a guy named John Wycliffe. What Wycliffe did was that he translated the Bible from Latin into English. And then what he did, there were handwritten copies that were distributed to the people. Wycliffe, catch this, Wycliffe was so hated by the authorities in England that several decades after he died, they condemned him for heresy, which was putting the Bible in the language of the common people. They dug up his body, they burned it, and they threw his ashes into the Swift River. That's how much they hated him. Now, why did they do that? Because they did not want the people reading the Word of God, and they did not want the people interpreting the Word of God. You guys understand there's a fundamental difference between Protestants and Roman Catholics. Uh, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic. Uh, Martin Luther was a priest, so he could, read, he could read the original languages. But one of the things that Martin Luther did was that as he read the Scripture and, understand, and he understood that the just shall live by faith, what, what Luther did was he challenged the teaching of the church and you see, the Roman Catholic Church basically says that the authority is the church and the teaching of the church and the tradition of the church and the Pope. Protestants say that the authority is the Bible, period. There's one authority if you're a Protestant, and it's the Bible. No man, no teacher is over the Bible. Every man, every teacher is under the Bible, and that's the authority. Um, not only did the people not know the scriptures back then, but the priest did not know the scriptures. Listen to this. One bishop in Tyndale's time did a survey of the 311 priests in his diocese. 168 of the priests couldn't repeat the Ten Commandments. 31 of the 168 had no idea where in the Bible the Ten Commandments could be found. 40 could not locate the Lord's Prayer. This is classic. 31 of the 40 could not name the author of the Lord's Prayer. See, and then people wonder why they called it the Dark Ages. What's been going on in Iraq is Dark Ages. Because wherever the Word of God goes, there's light. Let me give you another principle about the Scriptures and about interpreting the Scriptures. Am I saying every passage is easy to understand? No, I'm not saying that. Some of them are more difficult than others. But there are certain laws that when you use certain laws uh, of, uh, of interpretation, as you do when you're reading any document, you can usually, in most cases, figure out the meaning. Uh, this, would be, this would be the law of context. Anytime you read a passage, there are several contexts. Number one, there's the immediate context. Um, Uh, you don't appreciate your words being uh, taken out of context, do you? And that can happen. You've had it happen. When you're reading the Scripture and something isn't clear to you, understand that the Scripture has an immediate context. So if, you, if it's not clear to you, back up several verses to the paragraph, read what comes before, read what comes after. Usually, in the immediate context, your question will be answered, most times, more than not, out of the immediate context. There is also a context of the book. So let's say that you're reading um, 
uh, let's just say you're reading 1 Timothy, and uh, you're reading something in 1 Timothy, and it's not clear to you, and, uh, and you're, so what do you do? Well, read the whole book of 1 Timothy, because that's a letter. You see? It fits in. It's, it's just a piece of the puzzle. So you've got the immediate context, the verses around it, the verses behind it, the verses in front of it. But then the next context, back up and read the whole book. Because a lot of times the question will be answered if you just read it from beginning to end. Then you've got the context of the Testament. Uh, is it Old Testament? Is it New Testament? But let me give you an example. Um, I heard someone on TV this week talking about the fact that one of the things that is in the gospel is the promise, is the promise that God will heal you. Absolutely. He'll not only save you, but he'll heal you. It's an absolute binding promise, and it comes from Isaiah 53. Turn over there with me, if you would. A passage that uh, many churches looked at at Easter time. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, or I think the King James says, and by his stripes, we are healed. And here was this guy preaching this whole sermon on the fact that by his stripes, we are healed. And, uh, and you know, I mean, it was the Word of God. He was teaching it. But Scripture interprets Scripture. Um, this was an Old Testament passage. It's interesting because in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, Peter refers to this passage. Would you turn over there with me? 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about... Um, what he did for us in verse 22, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, in 1 Peter 2, verse 23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly, uh, righteously. Catch verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds or by his stripes you were healed. Do you see what he's saying there? In verse 24 Peter quotes Isaiah 55 but he doesn't apply it to physical healing he applies it to what? To salvation. He applies it to sin. By the stripes of Christ, we are healed. Healed of what? Healed of sin. Yeah. I think Paul, you know, Paul would have loved it if by his stripes we were healed. Because you see, if you could have been with Paul, if you spent any time with Paul, if you had gone on a weekend retreat with Paul, and uh, peel Paul, uh, peel, Paul peeled off his shirt, I mean, you'd wince to see that guy's back. Because how many times had he been whipped and flogged by the Jews? That guy's back looked like raw meat. It looked like hamburger. Uh, just, just strips of flesh. I mean, the pain. It had to be painful for Paul to get into bed at night. I wonder if Paul could ever sleep on his back. 
or if they always had to sleep on his side. You see, Paul had been stoned. They took these huge rocks and they stoned Paul. And see, when someone was stoned, they would have compound fractures. They would have internal bleeding. Now, what God did was God raised him up and he went right back in the city and he preached. It was an amazing thing. But, you know, do you think Paul had trouble with his joints? Do you think Paul had any problems with his back or with his elbow? Or his... I'm telling you, this guy was a walking wreck. Um, it would have been great if by his stripes we are healed of every physical ailment. Uh, that, those are well-meaning people that are teaching that passage, but they're not comparing Scripture with Scripture. See? Um, there, there is, uh, uh, go over 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. <clears throat> In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it, it's, it's an interesting passage because in 1 Timothy 2, you know, we, we, live, in a, we live in an age. I want to tell you guys something. We live in an age where... Um, there are certain passages in the Scripture that are difficult. There are certain passages in the Scripture that become disturbing. And there are certain passages in the Scripture that are not um, culturally uh, correct. They're not politically correct. I want to show you a passage that for hundreds of years in the Christian church, no one really had a problem with. But in recent years, there's a big problem with this passage in the evangelical church. First uh, Timothy 2.11, it says... Paul says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, what's he talking about here? Okay, because you can get in all kinds of problems with this. So, see, to understand this passage, what does Paul mean? Well, what is he talking about? Is he talking about every situation in life here? I don't think so. If you go over to 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, he tells you the purpose of the entire book of 1 Timothy. He says... I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, now catch this, I am writing so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The purpose of this book, he's telling these guys how the church is to function and how we are to conduct ourselves in the church. Does that make sense? That's the purpose of 1 Timothy as stated in 3, verse 15. So, you read this passage. I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So, you read church history, and what we have had here, we've had an understanding that women are not to be pastors, and women don't preach, preach from the pulpit. That's pretty much been carte blanche, the way it's been in evangelical Christianity for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, until recently. <clears throat> I don't have this exactly right, because I'm quoting it from memory. But I believe it was in 1951. I believe it was in Denmark. It was either Denmark or Sweden, but I'm rusty on this. They didn't have separation of church and state. If you were born in that nation, you were a Lutheran, period. Like you're born in Germany, you're a Lutheran, and you're a member of the Lutheran church if you're born in Germany. Okay. What they decided was, um, and I think it was Denmark, that what they decided was that they needed more pastors. The government decided this. 
So what they did was, they said, from now on, women can be pastors. This is in the early 50s. Well, there was an uproar. Because the theological seminaries, uh, the Bible colleges, they said, wait a minute, we got a problem. Why was there a problem? They had a problem from this verse. So they said, all right, take time and study the problem. So they all got together, they studied the passage, they studied scripture, they studied it in its context, they studied church history, they studied the whole thing. And they come back, and unanimously, unanimously, all the Bible scholars of that nation said, we cannot ordain women as pastors because of this and other passages. And there was only one person that disagreed with that. The rest of them were unanimous. That was in like 1951. 20 years later, 20 years later, the numbers flopped exactly opposite. Everybody had chained to the other position, and there was one that held the position everybody else held 20 years before. There was no new information exegetically. There was new, no new information theologically. You know what had changed? The culture had changed. The culture had changed. On this passage, how this is treated now by many evangelicals is they say, Oh, that's just cultural. You ever hear that one? Oh, that was just Paul's cult. That was just that was his culture. You know what's interesting? In the next verse, he gives the reason for stating the command, and it's not cultural. Catch this. He says, For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. Wait a minute. He's not, he's not at giving the reason out of his culture. He's going out of his culture to creation as the basis for that admonition. Is that making sense to you guys? See, so people explain that away and say, oh, that was just Paul being influenced by his culture. Paul never said a word about his culture. Paul goes all the way back and says, this is an ordinance from creation. Now, you know, this raises all kinds of issues. But the, the reason I use that, the reason I use that is that um, it's just a contemporary example of an issue that's a big deal right now, where we've got to go to the Scripture, and we've got to interpret the Scripture in its context, regardless of the response from the culture. We're not looking for the approval of the culture. Um, I've been reading a book this week by Leland Reikind on Bible translations. And uh, he says that in translating the Bible, there's been a shift in the last 50 years. And the shift is this. Historically, we, in, in Bible translation, if you go back to Tyndale, and you go back to Wycliffe and these guys, the principle was that we want to know what God has says, says, and we translate the text in order to get the sense and meaning because we want to know what God has said. Real quickly, go back to Nehemiah 8. I want to show you this real quick, and then I'm done. I know, guys, this has been a little different than what we normally do. Um, but you see how important it is that even when you're reading the scriptures, that you're reading in its context, you let scripture interpret scripture, all that kind of thing. Go back to Nehemiah. Uh, was it Nehemiah 8? I think it was. Yeah, Nehemiah 8. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then verse 9. Um, Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. 
So what's the big deal about that? What they were translating was the very words of God. The shift that has occurred in Bible translation is that the King James, all these different, if you guys have a New American Standard version of the Bible, um, that is literal to the Greek and Hebrew because the, because the whole point is to, is to interpret and to translate, not to interpret, to translate the words accurately because the words convey the meaning of God. Does that make sense? <clears throat> In his book, Riken points out that a lot of the new translations, the point is not to translate accurately the words of God, but to make the translation, um, what's the word I'm after? Uh, to make the translation user-friendly, palatable. Way to go, Fred. That's the word. You win the prize. That was the word I was after. There's no word like the right word. The shift has gone from translating the very words of God to making a translation that's palatable to the people. And by doing that, what we've done is we've dumbed down the Scripture. Not intending. Everyone has the best of intentions. But we need to know the words of God. We need to know what He said. That's the purpose. You see, in other words, and I'll close with this. I was reading, uh, David Wells is a great church historian and theologian. And he talks about the American church. And he says a shift occurred in about the 1860s. And what happened in the 1860s? Before what happened is preachers would get up and they'd preach the unvarnished word of God. And they'd just lay it out. Jonathan Edwards was the greatest theologian in the history of this nation. Uh, Edwards would read his manuscript. It was full of truth. People didn't watch TV in those days. People weren't used to being entertained. So they listened. It's a very unique concept. They listened. But in the 1860s, there was this preacher named Charles Finney that showed up. Finney was not big on scripture. He was not big on theology. He was big on effect and moving people and uh, affecting their emotions. And what happened, there was a shift that happened in preaching with Charles Finney where the response of the audience became central. There were never altar calls in the history of Christianity until Charles Finney. Do you know that? You ever been to church service? They give an altar call? And nobody comes forward, how does everybody kind of feel? Wasn't too good today. <laughs> yeah, preacher, you know. Hey, Nolan Ryan didn't throw a no-hitter every time he's up. You know, sometimes they'd, they'd, sometimes they'd get to Nolan for five, six, seven runs. Preacher didn't do real well. Why not? Because there was no response from the audience. And from the 1860s on, the whole purpose of preaching became to get a response from the audience. Prior to that, the whole purpose of preaching was to declare the very words of Almighty God. They weren't looking for people to come forward. They were looking for people to hear the word and understand the word and do the word. Does that make sense? Did he conduct the survey that you I didn't, but Wells did. I didn't, but Wells did in his book. So see, the audience becomes central. The audience isn't central. The Word of God is central.
And it was central to Nehemiah. And it's central to us. We've lost, I'll make a statement. It's not true of this church, but it's true of a lot of evangelical churches. We've lost confidence in the word of God to change life. So we resort to all kinds of gimmicks. We resort to big name this, 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 this. Paul said, preach the what? Word. That's it. The word of God changes people's lives. And we interpret it in its context. And we translate it to give the sense. Let's bow. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it. We thank you that we can read it. We thank you that it's available to us. I think back to that stage in the, the, the life of England when Bloody Mary was on the throne and hundreds of people lost their lives for reading the Bible. They were burned at the stake. They were drowned. I think of that one young boy I read about who just read a page of the Bible and they burned him at the stake. Lord, we're so grateful that, uh, that we have the freedom. Uh, we, we don't just have a page in our house. Most of us have two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight Bibles. And we're grateful for that privilege. We're grateful to be in a church where the Bible is taught. We're grateful to be in a church where the Bible is explained, where the Bible is taught verse by verse just as Ezra taught it, where it's translated to give the sense. And we'll hear it from the podium, we'll hear it from the pulpit, and then there are other men that move through the congregation, and we have classes, and we have small group studies that are translating to give the sense. We are so fortunate to be in a church that is doing what Nehemiah and Ezra did. We thank you for such a privilege. Lord, help us to love your word and then, Lord, I would pray that you would help us to implement your word. Um, Lord, I, I just think about the issue that uh, Mary challenged me on last night, and it was right out of the scripture, and how right she was. And I've been pondering it, but it was just so clear. And the sense of the scripture was clear. I just need to implement that. We're all facing that in one way or another in our lives. Help us to be men of the book. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.